Hey everyone, you're listening to an Acts Church sermon. If you have not heard of us before, you can check us out at www.axcamus.org or come check us out on a Sunday. All right, here is the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. Good to see you all. If this is your first time here, we're glad to have you here. We're here for you. Is there a bunch of people in this place that love Jesus and that love you? Um, and that this is a, I hope you get to know some of these folks that are around you if you're new. Uh, my name is David Robinson. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, today we're going to get into the Word. But before we do, um, I was, some of you know that my family and I, uh, Tiffany and our kids, we were called at one point in our lives to live in East Tennessee. In East Tennessee, and Tiffany and I were actually back. In East Tennessee, last week, that's why we weren't here, Scott Robertson, one of our elders, preached and did a wonderful job. I got to see it on, uh, or listen to it, um, and it, it was good. And we want to, let's give him a round of applause for what he did last week for us. It's nice to hear from somebody else from time to time, and, and Scott did a great job. So um, while I was there in East Tennessee, I played in the disc golf tournament. Now, for those of you who don't know what disc golf is, it's basically throwing Frisbees at a basket, okay? Um, and have you ever thought that you were pretty good at something and then found out you're not? <laughs> I'm assuming it's just me, but if any of you have ever done that, that is uh, kind of what happened to me. Um, sometimes the Lord, I think, thinks it's really good for me to be humbled. And so uh, I decided to play in this uh, it was called Amateur Masters Over 40 group. I know, I know, I don't look over 40. Um, that's a little too much laughing. <clears throat> Especially since my wife, who was up here playing bass, looks like she's probably in her early 20s. But that's just because Pastor David's got game. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, so uh, I decided to play with these guys and, and thought that their 40 over would make the competition a little weaker. Maybe I'd have a better chance in this tournament, um, but I'm not proud to tell you I finished in last place, and it wasn't close. And when I say, when I say it wasn't close, I don't mean that I wasn't close to the person in my division that was in first place. What I mean is that I wasn't close to the person in my division that was in second to last place. So it was, it was that far away. I did Axe Church proud. Um, I don't worry, I told him I was from Crossroads. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Like they would know what that is out in East Tennessee. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm going to get in trouble for that one. All right. Um, I don't even remember preaching on humility last time, which is usually how these things work. I'll preach on something and the Lord will bring it to bear in my life. But this time, I think I'm just bad at disc golf. So that's how that worked out. Either way, I'm glad to be back here with our family at Axe Church. And every time I'm away for something I come back, there's this, and, and especially this time, there is just this feeling of being home. Um, and I don't mean Vancouver, I don't mean whatever, I just mean you. I mean, being able to come back here on a Sunday morning and see our people that we are knit together with us, all called together in unison to be doing something together, it is a really powerful thing. And so I'm glad to be back with you all this week. Um, but before we get on to it, I actually want to say something else about Tennessee. When we lived in Tennessee, my wife and I and, and our kids, we lived there for about six years, and my parents would sometimes come to visit my kids and my wife. They didn't care that much about seeing me, but they did want to see their grandkids and my wife. And when they would come, we would do some touristy stuff 
because that's easier than, you know, talking to each other. And so um, East Tennessee is home to the Great Smoky Mountains, um, which is the most, oh, okay, somebody's been there, um, the most visited national park in the United States. And you might wonder why it is the most visited national park in the United States, but I'm going to tell you why I think it is. Because it's beautiful, okay, but it, honestly, it doesn't sniff crossing the 205 bridge and looking at Mount Hood. I'll just be honest with you. Um, but they've basically created this tourist trap all around the Great Smoky Mountains, the entrance going into the Great Smoky Mountains uh, National Park. So there's like Dollywood, and there's a big water park, and there's like this big uh, version of the Titanic that they made a museum out of, and there's like a wax museum, and, and, and like you can buy 10 t-shirts for a dollar at all these different stores that say, I'm with stupid, or whatever. You know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Classic tourist trap, right? And so that's what I think brings all the people there, which is very strange for us, because if you've been in the western United States and been to a national park, it's very rare that you're like, oh, we're done with this 14-mile hike and seeing the wild buffalo. Let's go ride a roller coaster and take a picture with a wax Chris Pratt. It's just not part of... <laughs> what we're doing, right? Anyway, my parents came and we took them to the Smoky Mountains to a place called Cades Cove. And Cades Cove is this beautiful place in the mountains. Mountains, okay? They don't know what mountains are over there. Um, they're more like hills. Am I right, Randy? Yep. All right. Um, so they are beautiful, but they're not the same. Um, we went, there's this place in the mountains, there's this cove, right? Kind of away from everything else. Some of you may have visited if you've ever been over there. It's really a beautiful place. In fact, I think people lived there um, from obviously a couple hundred years ago, right up until the 1930s when the United States sort of bought their houses because they made the national park there. So there were people there for a long time. And they've left this place much like it was uh, back in, say, the 1800s. And so you can take your car and you can drive around uh, throughout the whole place. And, and one of the interesting sites as you drive the sort of the loop of Cades Cove is a place called the Primitive Baptist Church. And here's a picture of that for you. This is the Primitive Baptist Church. One of the crazy things about these buildings over there, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but they'll take a building, the foundation will actually be a stack of rocks, like stacked on each other, and the building's just sitting on those, and has been for 150 years, and it hasn't moved, or like, it feels like you could just push, and the thing would come over, but these stacks of rocks. Anyway, that's, that's what it looks like, and you can go into that church, and a park ranger um, will give you some history about the church. And it was very interesting. I took my parents and, and Tiffany and the kids, and we went in here. It's very interesting to be this very, very old church. I mean, it's so old that back in the time when that was going on, my dad's jokes probably still would have been funny. That's... Um, anyway, it was very interesting to be in a very old church, okay? Um, and the park ranger told us something about what this church would do sometimes, and I found it very interesting. It's really connected to the passage we're going to be in today. What he said was that if there was, say, like a man in the church who was not taking care of his family, let's say he was becoming a drunk or he was treating his wife and children poorly, he wouldn't, do, he wouldn't work, he would, you know, whatever. He was, he was going awry. What they would do is the people in the church would shun this person and they wouldn't do business with this person at all. They, the person couldn't come to the church. They were sort of out of the community. And What's interesting is that at that time and in that place, shunning was pretty effective. And the reason it was pretty effective is because this was an isolated community. There was no superstore. 
right? You can't go down the street to get the things that you need. In fact, it would be, you know, the Smiths would raise the chickens and the pigs, and, and the Roberts would weave the clothing, and, and the Petersons would build houses, and so on and so forth. And so you had this community that had to sort of work with each other in order to, to survive and to thrive. And so if you were cut off from the community, it would mean you wouldn't get the basic things that you needed. You'd be in big trouble. You'd be without basic necessities, and you'd be without community in general, because this community operated like a body, like any good organization, different people doing their roles, different people doing their roles. Um, there was something even more significant that the person would lose from losing fellowship with their church, but we're going to get to that, Lord willing, a little later. Now, today in our culture, and I think for a lot of people who are sitting there listening to the Park Ranger, it's hard for us to understand this, because very few of us are in, in a situation where we're raising the chickens and the pigs or making clothes or whatever and sort of trading with our neighbors and, and that type of thing. And because if one church was to say, you can't be part of our community anymore, for a lot of people, at least in this town, you just walk a block or two down the street and find another church, right? Um, and, and this is actually why a lot of you who have come and you know, who've been coming for a while, on your first or second visit, if, if I met you, I probably asked you something like, oh, did you move to the area recently? Where are you from? Were you at a church before this? And that all plays into what, what's going on here um, because I don't think you should be able to just walk down to another church if there's real trouble with your last one. Um, but today, as we finish 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see the Holy Spirit through Paul, Silas, and Timothy um, giving a command to shun people, to shun people from the church. And this, this may come... Uh, as a shock to some of you, this, this passage. Um, but it is a serious and difficult teaching. It is definitely part of Scripture, um, and it's something that we have to sort of face up to and deal with. And so if you'll take out your Bibles, um, there should be some in the seat, so we don't have those chairs. So I hope you brought one or your phone or look on the screen or whatever. Uh, let's start with uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. It says this, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to stop there for a second because I feel like this is the first real hitch point of what's going to happen in this passage. For some of us, the idea of Paul and Silas and Timothy commanding people in the church to do something uh, is really a blow to our worldview. And it sort of messes with us because why, I mean, why would they be able to do that? Who do Paul, Silas, and Timothy think they are? that they can just command people to do things, right? Um, so the question is kind of what do they mean when they say we command you? And so we kind of got to go to the Greek. And it, the Greek word is parangelo, okay? And what it means really is command. That's what it means. It means they command you. Uh, it, it's, that's, that's what it means. They're commanding these people to do something. Um, the apostles, they were commanded by the Lord to oversee this church in Thessalonica, and they had the authority to command the believers there, to tell them to do certain things. Now, of course, those things need to be consistent with Scripture, right? But they were, in fact, commands. They were, in fact, commands. And I think for us, we're a little taken aback by that. I'm not sure how some of you would react if, you know, we're talking after church and myself or one of the other elders or, or whatever said to you, I command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to stop, you know, whatever, gossiping, drinking, you know, whatever it may be. You, you got some sort of sin problem. I, and we put it in the sense of, I command you to stop. I think a lot of people would be like, what? Yeah. Right? I, I think that, that there would be a little bit of a, of a taking back, not just because 
there's this issue of being called out on something you're doing, but just the idea that somebody could command us to do something. I think that that strikes us funny. Now, I'll be honest. I was born and raised in the United States, and culturally, it does feel weird to me. It feels weird to me and very out of place to think about people being able to command other people. Um, But here it is. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the overseers of this church, are commanding the brothers and sisters there. They're commanding them. We don't like being told what to do. I don't like being told what to do. I'm not going to speak for you, but I don't like being told what to do. Okay? Um, As children, we sort of don't have a problem with it. I mean, we may not like it or we may like it, but everyone's telling us what to do, right? Our parents are telling us what to do, the teachers, our coaches, they're all telling us what to do. But then we're kind of looking forward to this magical age of 18 when we become an adult and no one can tell us what to do anymore, right? We're not going to be commanded anymore. Those of you who have a job are already thinking, yeah, whatever. Um, We get to this idea, after all, this is America, right? Can't tell me what to do. Um, Now, most of us still live under commands, right? We see most of the laws that exist as commands or else we end up in jail. We see uh, the things that our bosses tell us to do as commands, right? Um, I find it interesting, very interesting, that we expect our bosses to give us commands, and we follow them because they have some control over our financial lives. But all of us, when we think about one of the elders of the church giving us a command, sort of bristle at that when they're responsible before God for our spiritual lives. Now, which is more important, our financial lives or our spiritual lives? Uh, That's always one we have to think about. Now, we're going to come back to this idea a little bit later, Um, but there is a reason why the Thessalonians did not just scoff at Paul and say, you command us or what? What are you going to do? Right? They didn't say that. They didn't say that. And that's kind of coming with the rest of the passage of what what sort of there is. It says this, uh, continuing with that verse, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. That you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. The Holy Spirit through Paul and and the others, Silas and Timothy, is commanding them to withdraw from disorderly brothers. That means separate. Separate yourself from those who are disorderly. Now, I love the word disorderly here for a couple reasons. There's a couple things that I think that that it sort of uh, gives the idea of that are really basic to the life of a Christ follower. Really basic. So first of all, the idea of order is fundamental to a Christ follower because we believe that God is a God of order. We believe that God is a God of order. God did not just create things randomly. He's not just up there flipping coins to see what happens. In fact, the reason that your heart is beating, and you're probably not even thinking about the fact that your heart is beating, right? My shirt's not that tight, so I know that that's some of you ladies. Okay, never mind. Uh, You're not even thinking about the fact that your heart is beating, right? But God has got that going. You're not even thinking about whether or not the chair you're sitting on is going to suddenly zap out of existence or zap back into existence, and you're going to fall on your bottom, right? You're not thinking about those things because God has put millions of physical realities into the world that have been precisely created and tuned and tuned to allow you to be alive at this time in this place, to allow you to be able to depend on physics. 
right? To, to allow you to depend on the fact that your chair is not going to just disappear, that you're not going to just be walking around and your arms are going to fall off, right? Which is awkward. That would be weird. You can depend on those things because God is a God of order. Because he's created things in such a way that we can trust and depend on them. Now, we are to walk orderly. That doesn't have to do with walking in a good way physically. That has to do with how we live our lives morally. Because just like God created the physical realities that are orderly, he also created the moral realities, the way that we should live to be right with him and to grow and to thrive he created the good in the same kind of way. So in the same way that when you're walking down the street, gravity keeps you from just floating away. As you're walking through life, morality keeps you from harm and danger and helps you to grow closer to the Lord. It's the same thing. So he's a God of order. And because he's a God of order, the things that we do ought to be orderly. So when he's talking about walking orderly or not being disorderly. He's talking about being consistent, living within the laws that God has designed for your benefit and thriving. Now, the other reason I like the word disorderly is because in the Greek, the word is often used to describe soldiers who are out of rank. Soldiers who are out of rank. And the reason I really like that is because as some of you know, if you've been around for a while, we talk at Acts Church about the idea of the shield wall. And the shield walls, a lot of you have heard of putting on the full armor of God. The shield wall is an extension of that idea, right? So you put on the full armor of God, but without the rest of the troop, without the rest of the army with you, you're probably going to die. You can be very well armed, but if you're on your own, generally speaking, you aren't going to make it. So the idea is the shield wall is all of us together marching against the gates of hell fully armored. And when I think about disorderly and I think about the, the idea that in Greek this would often be used to talk about soldiers who are out of rank, this sort of rings true to me. Because the brother or the sister who is walking disorderly is walking sort of out of rank. It's sort of off, off. If we're trying to fight a battle and somebody just kind of wanders off over here, it's going to make it hard for our battle plan to work, right? So the brother or sister who's walking disorderly is putting themselves in danger because of the sin and is actually putting the shield wall in danger as well. Both things are happening. This is serious. You are not the only one who is affected by your sin. When you're disorderly, you're not just breaking your own order. You're breaking the order of the church, the body that you've been called to as well. You're breaking the order of the shield wall. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. For those of you who have deceived yourself into believing that, you need to let that go. That thing that you're doing in the dark or that's only happening in your mind or whatever, it, it, if it's sin and it's disorderly, it's not victimless. It's not victimless. It has an effect on you, and it has an effect on the rest of the church. So the Thessalonians are supposed to follow the teaching that Paul, Silas, and Timothy laid out for them in the power of the Holy Spirit while they were there. And, of course, with the, with the last letter we read, 1 Thessalonians. And if someone wasn't following those teachings, that person was walking disorderly. He was walking disorderly, and the rest of the church was commanded to withdraw from him. Now, let's look at the next section here. This is uh, verses 7 through 12, chapter 3. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. Some are walking disorderly. We were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, 
but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, Paul is reminding the church first how he and the others behaved while they were ministering there. How did they behave? Now, there's two things with that. One, because of their behavior, right, Paul, Silas, and Timothy's example is a reason the people can trust their commands. When they're saying, I command you in the name of the Lord, and so on and so forth, a reason that people can trust those commands is because they were able to see their behavior. They were able to see their behavior. Their character qualifies them for their role in serving as overseers. The character that they showed is part of the qualification. We see qualifications in Scripture for what leaders and overseers are supposed to be. And the character that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had, they're saying, we'll put that to the test. We'll put that to the test. We did what we were supposed to do. And because of that, they ought to listen. They ought to listen. Secondly, a good leader leads by example and does not ask those he or she is leading to do anything the leader would not do or is not doing. Right? Nobody respects a hypocrite. Nobody respects a hypocrite. If you're going to tell people how they ought to live, you ought to be striving to live that way yourself. That's pretty simple, right? Otherwise, it, it rings pretty hollow. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were not disorderly among the Thessalonians. Now, I'm not saying that while they were there, while they were ministering, they didn't make any mistakes or there was no sin in their lives or anything. I don't know that. I don't know what they did or didn't do while they were there. But their lives were an example of orderly living, working night and day as an example to them. Even though, as he says here, they had the authority. They had the authority to tell the church, we're ministering to you. We're working for you. We're teaching you. We have the authority to ask you to support us. It's, it's right and good that they should have been supported by the people, but they chose not to do that in this scenario because they had this problem there with work so that they could be an example to them. So that they could be an example to them. And we get another command here. He commanded them, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Neither shall he eat. Now, to some of us, that's more of a threat than to others. Some of us like to eat more than others. Um, I take this as one of the more serious passages, right, uh, in Scripture. This is an important issue. This is an important issue. Clearly, the Thessalonian church had some issues with t people taking advantage, right? People were taking advantage of the church. They were expecting charity, and they weren't working. They weren't working. There are a number of different possibilities here. Different scholars and commentators have thought different things about what was going on in the Thessalonian church at the time, some think that, that the, some of the people may have been just waiting for the rapture, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Like, oh, well, there's a rapture coming, so might as well quit my job and stare at heaven and mouth breathe. You know, when I get hungry, hopefully someone in the church will feed me, those suckers who are still working. Some people think that. I don't think that. I don't think that's what was going on. And if any of you come to me and be like, well, here's the thing. I don't want to work anymore because the rapture could be coming soon. I'm going to be like, eh. Bad idea. 
What, what I pray is that every one of us will be found working hard for the kingdom when Christ returns to get us. Not that we'll be sitting around saying we gave up on work and we're just waiting for the next thing to happen. You've got work to do now. You've got work to do now. Um, some think that uh, the Thessalonian church, uh, some of the people were involved in the client system. The client system. And the way the client system worked back in those days is, is you'd have a person in the city who had some level of prestige or whatever, and there would be people, clients who would come, these, these people who would come and they would literally meet them at their door in the morning, and they would kind of be their entourage and walk around with them all day. And, you, and the more clients you had, the more prominent you were. And you would take care of your clients, you would give them food, and you would, you would give them protection, and so on and so forth. And you wanted to build the biggest entourage you could as you walked through the city with all these folks. And so this was a big thing back then, and, I, and some suggest that some in the Thessalonian church were part of this. So instead of working, they're spending their time, you know, uh, flattering some Thessalonian person who wants to have this big entourage of people. And Paul's like, that's not a job. That's not a job. That's not good. It's possible that's what was going on. Okay? Um, it's also possible they were just lazy. Right? I know that's never happened to any of us, but sometimes people are just lazy, and that's possible that's what was going on. They were just lazy. Either way, there is some applicability. This is applicable at some point to us as well because sometimes, even in our culture, primarily with young men, primarily with, with some young men, not lots of young men, just some young men, there are some people who prefer not to work and to live off their parents. I don't know if you're familiar with this. You may have heard of this 30-year-old guy. I think it was in New York, but I can't. New York, New Jersey, one of those Yankee areas. You know what I'm saying, Randy? All right. He's like 30 years old, and he's living with his parents, and he wouldn't get a job, and he wouldn't move out, and they literally had to evict him. They had to evict their son, who was 30 years old, from their house, from living in his bedroom, his childhood bedroom or whatever. Um, at 30 years old, uh, that seems a little bit embarrassing. Now, I think it's, this is actually very not common, the eviction part. I actually think it's very common. There are lots of 20 and 30-something boys still living in their parents' homes because they don't want to work, right? They don't want to work. And most parents won't evict them because they, frankly, don't have the courage to make their young men, boys, get off of their bottoms and work and get a job, right? They don't have the courage to do that. What scripture is saying here is that not working when you ought to work is disorderly. It's disorderly. It's against the created order. It's against the way things should be. It's against the moral law. You ought to work if you want to eat. No worky, no eaty. That's how it is. Hungry, job, right? Got job, get milk. That's how it works. Yeah. Got to be doing both, Okay. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, Silas, and Timothy, is basically saying, for those who are not working, get a job and work for your own stuff. Get a job and work for your own stuff. Now, I remember being young, and sometimes I was lazy, and sometimes I didn't do what I needed to do. And, and so I understand that some of us go through that, especially when we're young. But Scripture is telling us here, that's disorderly. That's not right. It's not right. Now, before people get too upset, 
Let me clarify a couple things. There were then, and there are now, some people who are unable to work. Unable to work, okay? Um, they simply can't work, and there's a number of reasons why that may be true, why you might not be able to work. Or you've worked for a very long time and you're retired, also great. Okay? But one of the reasons that is not a good reason for not working is that you just need a couple more days to beat the latest Legend of Zelda video game on your Nintendo, right? <laughs> Which is more commonly, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, right? Because I have a job. <laughs> Young men, boys, that's not an excuse for not working. That's not an excuse for not working. Um, as a church, and I just want to be really clear, this is not going to be a safe haven for Peter Pan boys who don't want to grow up. This is not a safe haven for you if that's you, okay? Get a job. We'll help you. We'll help you get a job, okay? Then work hard and walk orderly. That's how it ought to be, and that's what they're saying here. Let's look at the next few verses. But as for you, brethren, means brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Anybody ever go, just gotten tired of it? Like, just been like, I'm over it? Yes. Yeah. It happens, right? That's why this encouragement is here. Don't grow weary in doing good. Yes, there are times when it starts to really wear on you. It's like, I'm doing all this stuff. I mean, you look at the Psalms, where it's like, I'm doing all this stuff. These people over here are doing the worst things in the world. They seem to be getting rich, fat, and healthy, and I'm over here suffering, and I've got a rash. Right? <laughs> Maybe that was just my Psalm. I'm working on No. Right? This is not new. This is not new. The Christian life is not supposed to be easy. But don't grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now here we are back with how to deal with a brother or sister who is disorderly, who will not walk according to the scripture. What are we supposed to do? We're told to note that person, that's him over there, and do not keep company with him. Do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Now it says, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Obviously this is a redemptive process. The point isn't to count someone as an enemy. But this seems like a really hard teaching. And it is. It is. Because being a Christ follower isn't easy. It's not simple. It's not easy. I never said it was. Right? Scripture never says it is. In fact, it's the opposite. Like, pick up your cross and follow me. Like, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. There's a lot of stuff like that in there. So this is hard. But our God is a good father. And here's the thing you have to understand. He chastens those he loves. He chastens those he loves. And he loves you. He loves you. That means that sometimes you're going to get a spanking. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I can tell you this. I know I've been chastened by the Lord. I know I have. And there is very little that's ever happened in my life that has been more um, likely to make me grow than the times when the Lord chastens me. I, I thank God for the times that he chastens me, but it doesn't mean they're not hard. It doesn't mean that they're not hard. Yes, you are going to be under authority. And yes, that means those who God has called to serve you and put in authority may command you that you follow scripture, may command you that you do so. 
You might not like it. Tough. I didn't make the rules. This is the way that God has set things up. And yes, that means if you walk disorderly, you can be removed from fellowship. You can be removed from the church so that you'll be ashamed. That's a feel-good message, right? Before we flesh this out more, I want to I want to mention a couple things so that we are understanding this in the right context, okay? First, this passage is for the believer. For the believer. Okay? This is for the brother or sister in Christ, the Christ follower. This passage is not about unbelievers or seekers. That's not who he's talking about. There are a lot of people who come to a service or a life group, right, or, or whatever, and they're not believers. They're just checking it out. They're seeking. They're wanting to see what's going on. Um, they, maybe they just want to listen to a really bad disc golfer talk. That's, you find that here. Um, there are, right? They might just want to know more about the Bible, whatever. This is not about them. That's not about them. This is for people who have confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior and followed obediently in baptism and are professing to be Christ followers. That's who this passage is directed at. This is not for just everybody in the world or just people who are visiting or who have not made a commitment to Christ. This is for Christ followers. If you had to shun every person who walked disorderly, you would have to shun every unbeliever, for sure, right? And a lot of believers, and you'd have to basically move to an island, which may sound good to some of you. Depends on the island, I guess. First Corinthians also addresses this issue, okay? And it gives us a little bit of clarification here. And this is, this is what it says. It's a similar issue with the Corinthian church, and uh, this is what the Holy Spirit writes through Paul. First Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, if you want to look it up. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. A couple of things here. A couple of things that this, this scripture, this passage puts in perspective. We are not to keep company with the Christ follower who is walking disorderly. We're not to keep company with the Christ follower who is walking disorderly. Okay? And we are supposed to judge those who are named as Christ followers. If you want some more info on why Matthew 7, 1, which is like the most popular verse in the world now, says, judge not that you not be judged. You've heard this one before. The reason that that does not apply to judging the behavior of Christ followers in the church, if you want to know about that, there's a whole sermon I did on that. You can watch it. It's called Jesus in His Church, Grace or Judgment. You can find it on Vimeo. It's like the second thing I ever preached here, and they still kept me. Um, it was, it's, but it'll go through that. It'll go through what Matthew 7, 1 is talking about. And clearly, according to the Holy Spirit through Paul, it's not talking about judging each other. And when I say judging, I'm not talking about condemning. I'm talking about Making the distinctions, having some discernment. Oh, you're cheating on your wife with four other people? Well, who am I to judge? Right? Well, you're a human being with some reason, and you know scripture, you can judge that. 
You can judge that. And you don't, you do not continue in relationship with the person who's doing that. You have to separate yourself from that person if they won't repent. Now, the other thing is this. This applies to lifestyle sin that Paul's talking about. Walking disorderly involves more than taking a step. It involves walking disorderly. So this applies to lifestyle sin. That means that the sin is continuing in someone's life. It's continuing. This is not for something that someone does once. Some person has a sin and, uh, you know, sins once and, you know, you're shunning. I can just see my son Ethan coming to me this week and being like, uh, Dad, uh, Corey sinned by being mean to me. Can we please shun her? Right? <laughs> she shouldn't be. Uh, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Okay? This is for ongoing lifestyle sin that is unrepentant. Unrepentant. And all that means is the person hasn't confessed and turned away from the sin. Unrepentant, okay? So if the brother or sister recognizes that what they've done or what they're doing is wrong and is repentant, wants to turn from it, and is changing, this passage doesn't relate to that person. It's got nothing to do with that person, okay? This is for a brother or a sister in unrepentant lifestyle sin who refuses to walk orderly according to the scriptures and the authority of Christ the Lord. That's who this is about, okay? I'm going to do this thing. I've been taught properly about it. I've been commanded under the scripture to stop doing it, but I'm going to refuse to stop doing it. I'm going to continue in my own way. And at that point, scripture is saying very clearly, you're to separate from that person, not even to eat with them. Seems harsh, right? One last thing before we kind of continue on here. Uh, needing to step down from leadership roles, elder, deacon, that type of thing, is not what this is talking about. Sometimes you may have a sin, it may not be a lifestyle sin at all, just an issue that's happened that's caused a, a disqualification from a certain role within the church. Okay? That's got nothing to do with removing someone from fellowship, but somebody might step down for a time from the church or from the role, but not, but not be separated from the church. So that's not what this is about either. But here's the thing. The bottom line is that this practice, this thing that, that Paul's talking about here, uh, that the Holy Spirit has set up for us, is not just about the spiritual health of the person who God wants to reconcile to himself, but it's about the spiritual health of the church. The spiritual health of the church. If you don't do this, your church will not be spiritually healthy. What are we saying? What are we implying? What are we saying with our lives if we don't separate from the person with that unrepentant lifestyle sin? What are we saying? Well, we're saying we don't really believe what we say we believe. Right? Because the first thing we say is that we believe in Scripture, and Scripture clearly calls us to separate from brothers and sisters who are walking disorderly. Right? And I've told you what that means. They're unrepentant. It's a lifestyle sin. They, they refuse to change from it, and they, they say they're going to continue in it. We're supposed to separate from them. Scripture says to do that. So if we don't do that, the first thing we're doing is saying we don't really think Scripture applies to us. Right? The second thing we're saying is that we don't, or is that we say with our mouths that we think sin is serious. We think that sinning is serious and harmful. But when someone's doing a sin that we see as serious and harmful, we're not acting like it is. 
We're not acting like it is. When we don't separate, we enable a person to believe that we don't really believe. We don't really believe that his lifestyle, that his lifestyle sin is a big deal. We don't really believe that it's a big deal. And in doing so, we're basically implicitly or under the surface, right? We're involved in a conspiracy to basically destroy that person because we're adding we're adding our voices. Basically, we're winking at it. We're saying, yeah, it's cool. Why is it cool? Well, because if it was really serious, we would do something about it. Why? Because we said we believe in Scripture. So if we're not doing something about it, we either don't believe in Scripture or we don't think it's really serious. Either way, the person's going to keep doing it, and they're not going to feel any kind of accountability. Which means that we, who were called to help this person, are actually destroying this person. It is not a kindness. It is not a kindness to avoid judging brothers and sisters in the church. Okay? Regardless of what you have come to believe in our postmodern, post authority society, regardless of what you come to believe, it is not a kindness, it is unloving. It is unloving to not follow scripture. Paul isn't telling them to do this because he doesn't love those people, it's the opposite. He's saying to separate and let them be ashamed because he loves them. Because he loves them. It's actually unloving to just let it continue and be like, no big deal. Or I'm not going to say anything about it. Or you do you. That, you do you, that, that's not part of the church, okay? That's outside. Inside the church, you don't do you. You are a mess. You do Christ. You do Christ. That's it. You do you. If I did me, we're in big trouble. I got to strive to do Christ. Be like him. Ultimately, this is about redemption. Ultimately, this is about love. We don't want someone to feel ashamed so we can think about how much better we are than them. Okay, that has nothing to do with this. We are not better than them. I hope you understand that. Having to remove someone from community like this should absolutely break our hearts. It should break our hearts completely. We should be, we should be weeping to have to remove somebody from fellowship, not happy about it or judgmental about it. If it happens, it should make us weep. This is about God working with this brother or sister to change their heart. And this is part of what he uses to change their heart, to see them come to confession and repentance and redemption and renewal away from that lifestyle sin. Okay? God wants to remove the shame. He wants to remove the shame because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are not smart enough to outsmart him about the way he wants to do that. Even though in our society, this type of thing is really frowned upon. Traditionally called church discipline. A lot of churches don't practice it at all. And those who do are often... Uh, Let's just say they're not uh, talked about very nicely among people. Oh, look at these judgmental people. Look, there's no grace there. No, this is grace. This is love. It is love. When you see someone destroying themselves to look the other way is not love. To pretend like it's no big deal when they have called themselves a believer and a Christ follower and said that Christ is Lord of their life and their Lord is saying, commanding them, 
walk this way, and they're walking this way. It's not loving to look the other way and say, not my problem, not my business. This is America. People can do whatever they want. This isn't America. This is the church. It's worldwide, baby. Been going on for thousands of years. And these are the rules. Now, without Jesus Christ, every one of us would be in our shame. Every one of us would be in our shame. And we have to allow Jesus Christ to do the work that he needs to do with the unrepentant, lifestyle, sinning brother or sister. And sometimes that means taking a hard thing. Now, I have a lot more to say about this. But I don't have time for it this week. So next week, we're going to come back and say more about this passage. We're going to do, this is going to be kind of a two-parter. So I'm going to come back. There's more that I've got to say about this, but I can't get it all done this week. But let me, let me finish out with this, the rest of the passage. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace, always, in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul, with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now listen, this is the real message of every sermon. Underneath everything else and all the things that we learn, this is the message. The grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know him, if you're not walking with him, it's him who gives us peace. He is the Lord of peace. You won't have peace without Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of peace. He made peace with God for us so that we can be at peace with God. It's him who gives us grace because he paid the price for that grace by dying on a Roman cross and rising three days later, defeating sin and death and hell, proving that he was God proving that he can do exactly what he says he can do, which is to save you and to save me. And I know he's done it in me. I know he's done it in me. He's made a way for me. He's made a way for you. Don't get caught up in all the shunning stuff, especially if you're like a visitor and you're like, whoa. First week, pastor's up there talking about shunning people. Just FYI. It is extremely rare that something like that happens. Normally, it's a process that the person sees that what they're doing isn't what they ought to do, and they come back, and everything is good and redemptive. There are times occasionally where that's not the case, and it's a sad thing. But don't be thinking about that. If you're, if you're not even a believer yet, you got, there's, there's a whole other thing for you. Don't get caught up in that. Get caught up in the idea of the grace of Jesus Christ, which is being offered to you today. We love you. God loves you. The Christian life is not about shunning, trust me, or none of us would be here. The Christian life is about getting caught up in the grace of Jesus Christ and living in his peace. If you don't know him, today's the day for you to find him. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or Give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, it really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.